Father, as we look in your word this morning, a difficult, challenging passage, I pray that you'd all give us eyes to see and ears to hear just the things you mean for us, Lord. No more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We are back in Malachi 2 today. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. And if you remember, we started this year... This series started with a passage, with no passage actually, but with a challenge to live life in 2006 intentionally going counterculture. We looked at cultural statistics that were true not only for the larger culture that we live in, but also related to those in the church, that there was essentially no significant difference in these major areas of life between those who called themselves by Christ's name and those who lived in the world, and that we wanted to make it our intention in 2006 to live counterculture, to live our lives intentionally against the flow of culture. And so we've talked about that in a number of areas in Malachi. The passage we're in this morning deals with living counterculture in the area of family life. This passage is short but challenging for two reasons. One, textually, I'll read you from Andrew Hill. His commentary in the Anchor Bible Commentary series on this passage says, both textual corruption and grammatical anomaly combine to make this section the most problematic of Malachi's oracles, especially verse 15, one of the most obscure verses in the Masoretic text according to Denton and Sperry. I'm going to read New American Standard this morning, and actually I'm going to read some, some other versions too on two of these verses, verses 12 and 15. But if you don't have NASB, yours will almost certainly read differently than I read on verses 12 and 15. And Hill just makes the point, verse 15 especially, uh, translated a number of ways. And when they mean textual corruption, they don't mean that our Bible's not good, but that we have disparity among the manuscripts from which we're getting our translation. And then within that, verse 15 especially, but also verse 12, they're just hard to understand. Even if we have a good text, they're still hard to understand how to properly translate that, what the original thought was. So this passage is difficult just textually. It's more difficult, though, because it's a, it's a message that's difficult to hear, frankly. We're going to be talking about Jews marrying non-Jews, application Christians marrying non-Christians. We're going to be talking about divorce. Now, in our room right now and in any setting in which we talk about this today, we're going to have some or many or several who have married, who have been a Christian and married a non-Christian, have been divorced or divorced and remarried. And so I say all of that, this can be hard to hear. I'm teaching through it simply to be honest, frankly, to the scriptures. These would be easy passages to just skip over entirely. And let me comfort you or challenge you as I've challenged myself. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, through Paul, God says through Paul, all scripture is inspired and profitable. So difficult passages, passages that are personally difficult for us or personally challenging to the culture we live in, they're still profitable. They're breathed from God and they're profitable. Also, Paul said in Acts 20, he was leaving elders who would oversee the church at Ephesus. And when he did, he said two things about what he had spoken to them, that he did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable And he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or counsel of God. And so it's an attempt to be faithful to the Lord and to his word that we're teaching through this passage this morning. You know, sometimes we need 
medicine and it doesn't taste good. And so, if you will, consider this a little better medicine, but something that hopefully in the long run, in the big picture, is helpful. I might mention also, I was teaching in another venue many years ago about family-related issues. And a, and a family got up and walked out. This was in a large church setting, hard to miss. I talked to the husband that next week. He was offended by what I was saying. And, and by the way, what I was saying, I was trying to be honest, uh, uh, properly applicable to what we were talking about, family issues, and, and uh, that's what I'm trying to do this morning. So even if you feel offended or challenged or whatever, let me just encourage you with this. Take to heart whatever it is God has for you, or let go of whatever he doesn't have for you out of this passage. You know, we talk about this almost every Sunday, that God would help us to hold on to those things he just means for us. So if it's not for you, don't worry about it. You know, too, I was comforted by the thought that John the Baptist lost his head when he talked about divorce and remarriage, and so I <laughs> enter this with a little trepidation. The, the reason, too, I wanted to start on time this morning is because this really is a whirlwind tour. We're talking about only six verses, but there's so much here. And frankly, we could do a conference. We could do a series of teachings on no more than the issues that this brief passage brings up. And we're just, we are going through it quickly today. We're just touching the high points. And remember, in the context of the series, we're challenging ourselves to live against the culture, to live in a decidedly different way in an attempt to honor Christ and love Him. And if you remember, we said that all of the things that Malachi brings up, indicts the nation of Israel over, are related because they don't love God. If they loved God, these areas of their life would be transformed. Malachi 2, 10 through 16, we'll take this in two sections, verses 10 through 12 and then 13 through 16. By the way, you'll notice, unlike the other passages, God does not start with a statement here. Rather, Malachi starts with a statement and a question of sorts. <clears throat> Verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For... Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. Sanctuary could either be literally the temple or more probably it refers to the nation itself. The sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let me give you some other versions of verse 12. NIV reads, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. American Standard reads, Jehovah will cut off to the man that does this, the one that wakes and the one that answers, out of the tents of Jacob and the one that offers an offering to Jehovah of hosts. Let me read Hill's transliteration of this as well, which I think gives most clarity to this. He says, May God remove from his people the one who calls for a witness and the one who answers at witness, that is, at these marriages to the foreign wives. Or may God cut off from his people all who would even act as a first or second witness at the marriage to a foreign woman. Remember in Israel, uh, facts, legal or otherwise, were confirmed by the witness of two or three. Two is the minimum number of witnesses. That's Hill's take on this. So the first issue here is the marriage of Jews 
to non-Jews. And listen to Malachi's strong words and descriptions, just highlighting. He says, We deal treacherously. We profane the covenant of our fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously. Even stronger, an abomination has been committed in Israel. Judah has profaned or made unholy the Lord's dwelling place. Uh, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut him off. May the Lord remove the men who are doing this from the nation. And then the question becomes, what's all this over? What is this strong language over? That's in verse 11. That Jews have married the daughters of a foreign god. That Jews have married non-Jews. The question is raised, what's... What's the deal? What's so important to God that he's using this strong language? Why is it important? Why is it meaningful that Jews were marrying non-Jews? First, it's important to say God was not prejudicial. Uh, We talked about this briefly in Sunday school. Paulette made a great point. You know, all of us, no matter what part of the world we come from, uh, no matter what the color of our skin, all of us, the Bible says, came from one man and one woman. That is, all of us, are created in the image of God. And we all have equal inherent value based on that creation. So God is not prejudiced against non-Jews. Also, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And the Holy Spirit today, Revelation says, is saving or redeeming people from every tribe, race, tongue, and kindred. When we get to heaven, there will be this mixed salad, as it were, of people from all over the globe. So this has nothing to do with God being prejudiced against something because they were not a Jew. This has everything to do with whose God would Israel have. Now, the uh, nations around Israel, you remember if you read any of the books about Israel or the history or the prophets, the nations around Israel all had their own gods. And the implication here is that when a Jew married a non-Jew, he, and by the way, this is almost entirely related to men marrying foreign women. That was the practice. They were, in essence, God says, they were turning from God to embrace another God. That's why this verse 11 says, it doesn't just say you've married the daughter of a foreigner. It says you've married the daughter of a foreign God. And the thought is that When this Jewish believer married the non-Jew, he was turning his back on God and he was embracing another God. That's why God forbid this intermarriage. And God wanted, remember, God's in a unique covenant with Israel. And God is supposed to be at the center of all of life in this nation. This would be a blessing for Israel themselves, but it would also mean that Israel would be, what Jesus says in the New Testament, a city on a hill. They'd be a light to the Gentiles. That God meant that Israel themselves would be blessed in their relationship, their covenant relationship with Him, this marriage-type covenant in which God would particularly be their God, they would particularly be His people. So they would be blessed in that. And if you will, this means God is jealous over what is His. Just as a husband today is appropriately jealous over his wife. Jealousy in the biblical sense does not mean that I do evil based on uh, envy. Jealousy in a biblical sense is that I have an appropriate respect and desire for what is uniquely mine. If a husband was not jealous towards his wife, there would be something deficient 
in his emotional ties to his wife. He should want his wife's exclusive devotion or affections, those which are unique to marriage, should be his and his alone. So God expected Israel to turn towards him uniquely, that he would be the center of their affections. And he says here, when a Jewish believer turned and married a non-Jew, they were de facto, they were in essence turning their back on God himself. But they were also setting up their marriage to not be a city on a hill and not be a light to the nations because their marriage would now be divided because they wouldn't be pursuing the same God, because they would have one person maybe still pursuing the God of Israel, the true and living God, and another person going in an entirely different direction. And you remember in Deuteronomy, we've actually mentioned these verses already, but in Deuteronomy 7, God warned Israel before they entered the land, Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 6, don't intermarry with those people in the land. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Don't take their daughters for your sons. Why? They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And that is exactly what has happened. Verse 6, you are a holy people, that is, you're set aside, uniquely so, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you for a people, his own possession out of all the peoples in the face of the earth. So God says to Israel, when you choose that non-Jew, you're choosing another God. You can't get away from it. Remember, too, sometimes today we'll think of atheists. Uh, you know, there weren't many atheists historically in the world. In the cultures around Israel, every nation worshipped their own God. So when you married someone from another culture, again, it's not that God's prejudiced because they weren't Jewish the issue is that they worship another god. And so Israel, these marriages, would end up producing factionalism within Israel. The nation would be torn down because its heart would be divided right at the building block of the nation, at the family. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God's thought for the family and this is why, I mean, we're touching on issues related to the family that are so important today, and maybe we'll do a series on them later. I don't know. But this is so important because God works in the nations and in time and history primarily through families. Paul says the families on earth derive their identities, their names, from God himself. And the thought goes something like this, I believe. Families on earth are supposed to reflect the relationship within the Trinity. That is, the love, the esteem, the respect that the Father shows the Son and the Spirit, that the Son shows the Father and the Spirit, that the Spirit shows the Father and the Son, are supposed to be reflected in family life, a husband, a wife, and a child, or children. That you're supposed to see this harmony and this love and this interaction in the Trinity is supposed to be displayed today in a family. And uniquely for Israel, that was the thought that Israel would be comprised of families collectively which would display the love of God within the Trinity. So they would be a city on a hill. They would be a light to the Gentiles. That's what God was after. Also, though, this comes up. Through intermarriage with non-Jews, what happened to the children? Now, you may be in a relationship like this or you may know someone in a relationship like this. One's a Roman Catholic and one's a Lutheran. And what's the key question they're asking themselves when they're considering marriage and children? What faith will my child be raised in? 
One's a Jew and one's a Christian. What faith will my child be raised in? That's another huge issue related to this intermarriage issue God's bringing up here in Malachi. What happens to the children? What happens to the children? Listen to this in Nehemiah 9. And By the way, you remember we said, if you want to read more about this, Ezra and Nehemiah, the same issue, exactly the same issue, had just been treated shortly before Malachi wrote. So when God's addressing this, if you wonder at the strong language, it's not just because the issues themselves are important. It's because he just dealt with these issues short days ago, just before Malachi wrote in the times of Nehemiah and Ezra. In Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah wrote, I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah but the language of his own people. These were Jewish children who couldn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They spoke the language of the culture their mother came from. Whose God do you think they were worshiping? It wasn't Jehovah. It wasn't Yahweh. Nehemiah says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Yet... The foreign women caused even him to sin. Nehemiah dealing with exactly these same issues before. If you remember, if you go back to those, Israel had just been brought back from Babylon, got to discipline them, dispossess them from their land, put them in Babylon for 70 years, brought them back, and what was the first thing they did? They married foreign women. And you know, uh, mercifully, God cut this thing off right at the beginning because he knew it was trouble. And you know, you can lose a... uh, God's work, as it were, can be lost through this in a generation. You can lose what God has done in a generation through this issue. For today, if you bring this up today, what does this mean? Moving from Malachi to the New Testament, from Israel to the Christian household of faith today, God has this same restriction or prohibition today for Christians. That is, the New Testament makes it clear Christians are to marry only other Christians. 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That is, a person's married, their spouse dies. Paul says, hey, if they want to remarry, that's not a problem. With this prohibition, this restriction, whom they marry must be in the Lord. They They are free only to marry another Christian. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. This means tied up in a covenant relationship, whatever you, however you see this, but bound together. I'm tied up, I'm bound up with another person. Don't be bound with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Language almost directly out of Malachi. God's sanctuary, the church, is God's sanctuary. So Christians are to marry only other Christians, and exactly the same kind of issues are at stake. God means for His love within the Trinity to be reflected in Christian families today. He also means to bless Christian families or families where spouses are marrying other Christians. Uh, they are uniquely blessed because they're headed in the same direction. When I was a young Christian, uh, a guy that was discipling me from Campus Crusade for Christ, 
uh, warned me. I wasn't dating anyone at the time, but he warned me. He knew this would be an issue. He said, uh, think of a triangle. God's at the top. You're at one corner and your spouse or potential spouse is at the bottom. As long as you're both Christians, your lives are oriented towards Christ. That is, you're always growing towards Christ. And with that model, two Christians married together are always heading in the same direction, or potentially so. We all sin, and certainly this isn't perfect. But that your lives are oriented to the same star, the same guiding influence, and so you're always growing closer together. If you take a Christian and a non-Christian, the Christian's life may always or consistently be oriented towards Christ, but that will not be true of the non-Christian. And so you have this chaos or this confusion built in to a marriage relationship. It's, it's troubling. It's troublesome. Um, marriage is a tough go. You know, God means it to be a blessing to us, and it is a blessing, and I'm blessed in my marriage. I wouldn't have it any other way, but it's tough work. And, you know, sometimes we come to marriage and, and there's stars in our eyes and it's all going to be easy and fun. And then you get married and you find out there's another side and there's a lot of hard work and there's rubbing off rough edges, etc. Two Christians working together, moving towards Christ. This is as easy as it gets. Two people with different orientations, it gets to be quite a bit more difficult. If you're not married, let me give you the same Uh, caution or concern uh, that Jim gave me, which is to be so careful in this area, so careful. I've known many Christians who have married non-Christians. And in many situations, God has been quite merciful in these things, and there's been fruit. Sometimes uh, those uh, unsaved spouses have become Christians, but certainly not always. Uh, I don't know any of the people who have done that, though, who would recommend it to others. I don't know anyone who's done it who would recommend it to others. If you're not married and you'd like to be married, take this very seriously. This area is fraught with temptation. You will face temptation. If you haven't yet, you almost certainly will. So let me just say, don't date non-Christians. You know, if you don't start a process, you can't finish a process. Don't date non-Christians. If you're a Christian, don't date someone who's not a Christian. By the way, don't kid yourself and say, I'm dating evangelistically. That is, I'm dating this poor Christian guy or this poor, excuse me, poor non-Christian guy or poor non-Christian girl because God's going to save them through me. Don't count on it. And God can save them any place, any way he needs, he wants. He doesn't need you to date them. And certainly don't marry evangelistically. Again, I just think this is so naive. Many times I've known people who've married, Christians who've married a non-Christian, this was their thought. I love him, he'll love me, and he'll come to Christ. Uh, Don't presume on that. Uh, Again, I I know God has mercifully acted in many of the situations, but don't count on it. Don't count on it. So don't start the process. You won't have to finish it. There will be nothing to finish if you don't start. The second thing is this. For children to grow up, uh, thinking from a Christian perspective, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, children to grow up to know and serve Christ, God's desire, oftentimes, is that He's going to put those folks in Christian households. And you know, marriage is a difficult proposition, even with Christians, and parenting is a difficult proposition, even with Christians. You've got sinful, morally deficient parents raising sinful 
morally deficient children. So it's, it's fun, it's a blessed thing, it's great on one hand, but it's difficult on the other. So we need, we need it as good as we can get it, so to speak. So this is also important because of your children. And again, we've known so many couples who've had great disagreements. This has been an ongoing issue and debate. Because they were coming from different perspectives when they got married, this only gets further complicated when they have children and are trying to determine what faith, or what basis for living will they present to their children. By the way, I'll just mention this in passing. This thought that marriage will produce children, this was a biblical thought. This is not always given today. Again, I just say briefly, marriage in God's economy was always meant to be productive, to be fruitful. God intends when people get married generally that they have children. In our culture, and I just say this, thinking about living life against the flow of culture. In our culture, we tend to value things more than people. Things more than people. God values people. People endure forever. Things melt up eventually, rust out, break down, fall apart. When, when people get together and marry, the norm, I'm not saying there's not exceptions, but the norm is that they would have children and raise them up to know and serve the Lord. So, you know, when Abraham, just as a, brief uh, closing example on this section when abraham was ready to get a son a uh, wife for his son isaac you remember that guy he'd waited so long for he tells his servant hey go back to my family don't take a, a wife for my son from the pagan nations i live in and don't take my son away from the land that god's promised me and him but you go get a wife that will be the right kind of fit for my son no other and then if you remember what happens with Isaac's children, Esau marries what? He marries Canaanites. And what does Isaac tell Jacob? Don't you marry one of these local girls. You go back to the family. You find a wife there from our family that will be an appropriate fit. Biblically, you go back and you see the same thing, the same concern, because the fathers knew what was at stake related to their children's marriage. The second issue we, in going through this passage, verses 13 through 16, continues with the family theme, but this brings in the issue of divorce. Let me just say, in entering this, in Israel's day, and you, you know this biblically, men could divorce women. Basically, women couldn't divorce men. So this is written to men, but we would, applicationally today, we would understand this goes both ways today. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. I know this is NASB. Your verse 15 reads differently if it's another version. Let me read Hill's translation or transliteration of verse 15, which I think is helpful and makes sense. Totally different take. Surely the one, that is God, made everything. Even a residue of a human spirit belongs to him. And what does the one, what does God seek? A seed of God, or a godly seed or posterity. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And then verse 16, 
This is the period on the end of the sentence. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong or with violence, your translation may say, say, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Listen to Hill's comment too on verse 15. Whatever the exact meaning of verse 15, the treachery and faithlessness of divorce as practiced in post-exile Judah stand diametrically opposite the legacy of covenantal oneness and faithfulness Israel received from Yahweh. The people are not one with each other. How then can they hope to be one with Yahweh and inherit the blessings of covenant relationship incorporated into his charter or covenant with them? And this language, divorce, is this violent tearing. And in this case, too, it's what a man did to a woman, the wife of his youth. By the way, in our culture today, divorce uh, goes either direction. I don't know what the statistics are as far as filings go. Men against wives, wives against husbands. Not unusual, though. I find it interesting, uh, midlife crisis divorce. You know what I mean? When the guy hits 50, my age or so, Bill, nothing you'd know about. And what does he do? He divorces his wife of 20 or 30 years and what? He marries a younger gal. And probably to some degree that's what was going on here. Jewish men were divorcing the wife of their youth. God says this is treachery. This is this deep, profound betrayal. Today God says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Today, just as back then, God said, when you're married, I want you to stay married. The Corinthian context is quite different than Malachi. In Corinth, there was this view, you're in a Greek area of the world and their philosophy told them sort of that What's physical is bad. What's spiritual is good. And so you had, in essence, wives primarily, apparently, wanting to divorce their husbands so that they could be more spiritual. Paul says, oh, no. If you're married, you stay married. If you're married to a woman, if you're married to a man, stay married. And if you leave your spouse, do not remarry. Again, 1 Corinthians 7. In our culture, as you know, divorce and remarriage are common occurrences, but they are not meant to be. They are not meant to be. This was one of the key area statistics we looked at in that first teaching in this series, the introductory teaching, when we saw that divorce among Christians statistically is no different than divorce among non-Christians. If you're married, God says, stay married. If you're married, stay married. By the way, he says, if you're married to a non-Christian, stay married. I can't remember if I bring this up in a minute. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, though later, if you have a a non-Christian spouse, again, a little different context, but if you have a non-Christian spouse and they're willing to continue living with you, stay married. So the word here is stay married. Now, you know in our culture, almost always the question comes up, okay, but what about my circumstance. When is it permissible? When can a person remarry? Uh, Paul says in Romans 7, 2, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. 
If her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Clearly, death ends marriage. That's why we say, typically, till death do us part. Because we understand that death ends a marriage. And a person would therefore be free to remarry. That's clear. Once you go past this, it gets less clear. And I'll just tell you, if you take a survey of theologians, if you check commentaries, you'll see that the positions go from this. There is no exception clause in the Bible that allows divorce with the possibility of remarriage. Two, others who will go and say there's uh, several um, exceptions that would allow a person to divorce biblically and remarry and that God would sanction that divorce and that remarriage. I'm going to share with you the two that seem to be the consensus. If you look at commentaries and if you check the theologians, uh, godly men differ on these, of course, but this seems to be kind of where the dust has settled. One exception to being able to biblically divorce with remarriage is found in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, the Greek term for this is porneia, it's sexual immorality, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I just say, the thought here is that the woman would remarry. And when she remarried, Jesus said, the remarriage is in effect adultery because God thinks they're still married unless the divorce was for sexual immorality. Matthew 19.9 says the same thing. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, porneia, sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. Generally, it's understood that this is the clearest exception in the scriptures. If you're going to say God makes exceptions, this would be the one you can stand on. That God says, appears to say this, sexual immorality uniquely has the ability to tear the fabric of a marriage relationship, this sacred covenant relationship between one man and one woman, so significantly so that God says in this instance, he does not command, let me say this, He does not command. It's not even that he says he recommends it, but it's allowed. It's allowed. The other exception is this. Uh, It's typically called abandonment. This is out of 1 Corinthians 7 as well. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave the brother or the sisters not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Uh, Part of this understanding is based on the Greek terms bound and at peace. And it goes like this. This couple, uh, this Greek couple, the gospel came into Corinth and the wife or the husband believed. Their life changed. And now their spouse says, I don't like the new you. And I don't want to live with you. I didn't sign up for this Christianity thing. I'm not going there. See you later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God calls them to peace. They're no longer bound. And later on, these same terms come up later when he says God has called them to peace, and it's understood here probably, this is not as clear as the Matthew 5 and 19 clauses, uh, but that God calls them to peace, they're at peace between him, and they are no longer bound to their former spouse. If we're going to have exceptions, these are the two clearest exceptions. Some people will try and go further down the line than that. Biblically, you get on thinner and thinner and thinner ice. And let me say this. Um, I've sat in on more meetings than I care to remember where someone has wanted to be remarried. And 
the desire is always to make sure that their situation fits an exception clause so that the church can sanction their remarriage. And understand this, whatever else we get from this passage today, in living counterculture and in trying to honor God in our families and through our marriage, God's emphasis is stay married. The emphasis is always stay married. That's the emphasis, so don't lose that. When you start talking about exceptions, you start getting potentially further and further and further adrift. Do you remember how, uh, maybe still today, pro-abortionists frame the exceptions? That they wanted abortions to be uh, rare, safe, and legal. Rare, safe, and legal. Do you know that in 2004, my daughter pointed out to me just last week, for every 100 live births in New York City, do you know how many abortions there were? 74. Almost the same number of abortions as live births. Do you think that's rare, safe, and legal? Of course not. But what you have is when abortion was introduced, the thought in people's mind was always this. We need these exceptions. But almost always, this is what happens. You create an exception, and then everybody wants to make that exception as big as possible because we, when it's convenient, we all want to go through. But remember, God's emphasis is stay married. Stay married. Don't lose that. Uh, once in a while, there are going to be exceptions and people are going to fit these, but be careful. Remember that God's emphasis is stay married. You remember in the passages before this, we talked about the priests. God indicted the priests because they were offering these lousy, deficient animals on the altar, and God says, hey, this does not wash. Or that then in the passage we looked at last week, the priests were living deficient lives. And instead of bringing people closer to God, they were actually driving them further away. And the priesthood, which was meant to bring people closer to God, the offerings which were supposed to be characteristic of God's unique offering in His Son, that they actually marred this image. Well, that's what's going on today in families. When Christians are marrying non-Christians and families are established on this rocky, uneven foundation and children are raised with one version and two of who God is and how to live life or when, when spouses divorce each other because it's inconvenient for me to love you now or you're a little older and I don't like you as well or I can't remember the phrase that always comes up, but irreconcilable differences. <clears throat> Marriage is no longer convenient. It's not easy. All of these things mar what God was after in creating families. Remember that the family is supposed to be this reflection of the Trinity itself. Love and respect, mutual affirmation of each other. That's what the family is called to be. That's what God is after. And especially in the church today, that's what God is after. You know, uh, when we were still in public schools, this is years ago, we knew that a third of the children in my daughter's class came from a divorced family. You know, when a guy would walk into the class and show a little interest, it was like bees to honey because these kids were coming from families where, where there were lacks because things weren't right at home. And you remember when we talked about in Numbers, when Satan, through the king of Moab, wanted to get at God's chosen people, and that old nasty prophet couldn't curse them, do you remember how he got at them? He just said, hey, just get their sons to marry your daughters. 
that Satan was in that time and in that day trying to subvert God's plan in the earth by intermarriage, by breaking up God's plan for the family. And guys, I'm telling you, this is exactly what's at play today. It's not a coincidence that as our culture is going down, that families become less and less stable. This is a reflection, I think, of the spiritual attack that goes on in our country. And you know, if Satan can wreck a marriage, just think of the ripple effect that goes through. Two people living together in a family, a happy family, with children being raised up in that, it's a beautiful thing. But what happens when that thing gets ripped apart? The ripples just keep going. The destruction just goes out like ripples in a pool away from that. And believe me, Satan is at work to destroy families today. And if we are naive to this, we, we are just setting ourselves up to be one more statistic in those unhappy statistics we started this year's series with. Terrible destruction comes from marrying someone who's not committed to Christ. You are, in effect, turning away from God and the sacred relationship you have with Him when we do that. Or in divorce, instead of showing faithfulness to God by loving our unlovely spouse sometimes, and our unlovely spouse is loving an unlovely spouse sometimes, reflecting God's kind of love, we're basically saying it's a matter of convenience. And our kids grow up to know we're faithful to others as long as it's convenient for us. This is pulling down what God's after, which is the strength of the family, His blessing to the world. You remember in the creation account, He created the male and female. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And he said, of all that, that original design, he said, it's all good. And when you and I commit ourselves to honor God by marrying only the kind of person God wants us to marry, by being faithful first and foremost to God, by loving God, by committing to marry only the kind of spouse God would bless, When we commit ourselves to honor God, to love Him in our marriage, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's pleasurable at the time or not, that's what He's after. And even if you go through periods that are hard, you'll be better for it, you'll honor God, and you won't see those destructive ripples going out from around your life. Um, You know, uh, in the last, I suppose, 20 years, think of how many well-known Christian men have failed morally in some significant way, uh, numerous. And do you think that's just coincidence? That these guys who, on one hand, they'd committed their lives and, and their energies to honor God and, and bless others, do you think that somehow it's just coincidence that, that 20 or 30 years down the line they fall apart? It's not. It's because, I believe, the enemy targets them. Why? Because their failure has this destructive ripple effect. And the same thing happens in your family and mine when we don't hold on to what honors God in them. So you and I love God when we determine to marry the kind of spouse that is going to honor God as well and help us honor God. And when we stay committed in our families and when we train up our children consistently so to know and honor and love God. That's what he's after. So make it your purpose in 2006 to live counterculture by saying no to the temptations to divorce or no to entertaining thoughts in your mind that don't build up your marriage or no to the temptations to entertain thoughts or situations that could lead you 
to enter a relationship with someone you know God doesn't have for you. So we love God best when we say to him, Lord, I give you my hopes related to family life. Lord, I'm going to honor you through my family life, whatever that looks like or whatever it doesn't. As I said, this would be a whirlwind on a huge, huge issue. If there's anything that has been raised today that you want to talk about, holler. I'd be glad to visit with you. If you'd like to read more, I've got books I'd be glad to loan you or recommend to you. So uh, if you're uncomfortable in whatever way, just remember, just go home. Just ask the Lord, Lord, what do you have for me out of this passage? How does this apply to me? How can I honor you in either my family life now or in my desires for the future? Let's pray. Lord, it is by your name and by your character and by your identity that all families on earth derive their essence. And Lord, thank you that you mean to bless us through our families, through a spouse, through children. Lord, I know that everything you do for us is good. It's benevolent. It's merciful. And I pray, Lord, that you would have our eyes, our ears, our attention in this area as well. I pray that each one of us here would buck the trend of the culture, Lord, that we would love you. And in commitment and love for you, we would dedicate whatever hope we have for marriage and family or whatever our marriage and family situation is now, we would commit that to you and make it our firm resolve and purpose, Lord, to love you, to honor you by giving you our marriage, our families, and our hopes. In Jesus' name, amen.